Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case for loving you. KFI AM 640. You are with Dr. Wendy Walsh for the next two hours. Another gorgeous Sunday afternoon. What better time? at the end of your week or beginning of your week, however you want to think of Sundays, to think about your life, think about your feelings, and plan your life. For those of you who don't know me, I hold a PhD in clinical psychology. I am an educator. I teach at Cal State Channel Islands, psychology of health counseling and developmental psychology. But my area of big interest is attachment. The ways humans attach or detach across the lifespan, to each other, to their stuff, to their pets, to their kids. We're all attaching in some way. I really believe attachment theory is underlines so much of human behavior. Anyway, I decided today that I wanted to focus today's show on change. Now, I know we normally think about change and we do these kinds of topics around New Year's because there's all this effort to make a New Year's resolution and change your life for good. But today, uh, if you did make a New Year's resolution, it's probably getting weak by now. Statistics show we're well into February, end of February. Um, So it might be served to recharge you to think about those New Year's resolutions. By the way, my New Year's resolution was to spend less money this year. And yesterday... I fell off the wagon. I bought a pair of jeans. Now, you got to understand, I come from a generation who never paid more than $40 for a pair of jeans. And I bought a pair of jeans that were $242. That's insane. That's an insane amount of money. Alex, my producer, is laughing at me. She's cracking up right now. She can't believe it. Oh, Alex, I didn't tell you about the $158 necklace that I threw in the bag at the last minute to take. I know. That's more understandable than jeans. I'm oh, sorry. no, but they fit. They made my butt look really good. And you get to a certain point in then life. fair is fair. There's like no price for that, right? It's priceless. Um, but then I felt guilty because my New Year's resolution was to save more money, put more money in my pension fan plan. By the way, I have no trouble buying things for my children. It's just the guilt, guilt I feel taking care of myself. On the other hand, I want to take care of my long-term self not my short-term self, and that was the New Year's resolution. So I will tell you that I remembered everything I taught everybody in the first week of January, which is if you fall on the off the wagon, whether it's a new exercise program, a diet, whatever, don't throw in the towel and go, oh, it's all over, I'm a bad person, now I might as well just spend wherever I can. You look at it, you analyze it, you say, okay, I had a really bad day. Obviously, there were some other things going on that I felt like these jeans would bring me security. I, I don't get it. But now I'm even stronger for the next day. So I carried my own coffee this morning. I did not waste money at Starbucks, brought from home. So that's what you do. You use that to analyze what went wrong and get fortified for the next thing. 
So let's talk a little bit about change in general. Can people change? Or do people mostly stay the same? Often people will ask me, oh, come on, Dr. Wendy, isn't a cheater always a cheater? Isn't somebody who's been a couch potato their whole life going to look forward to being a couch potato for the rest of their life? Isn't somebody who has a lot of anxiety, you know, that's just the way they are. You can't really get over that. That's You learn to live with it, right? Well, yes and no. I beg to differ. Because what is psychology? Psychology is our biology, our biological predisposition for anxiety, for depression, for joy, for being even keeled, whatever. Our psychology meeting the environment. And our most impactful environment that begins in infancy and goes across a lifespan are our primary intimate relationships. So what happens is that we react to those relationships based on what our biology says to do. But we are also thinking conscious beings and we can change our reaction to the environment. I often say that human behavior is motivated by two things, emotion and habit. And when I say emotion, there are plenty of people who were not given the tools as a child to manage their feelings or even to have insight, to be aware of their feelings. So they will have an emotional reaction, be unaware of what the real cause is, I know, I'm thinking about the real cause of making me buy those jeans, okay? I know. Um, And then they will react in a way. They'll kick the dog, they'll yell at their kid, they'll get in a fight with someone at work. Um, They will feel lost and depressed for no reason they don't understand because they don't have insight and then they drink their troubles away. So this is where emotion lies behind human behavior. But right behind that comes habit. Because if you do something over and over and over and over, it is now ingrained as your personal habit. And breaking habits are very difficult, especially if the habit also involves a physiological addiction like nicotine or opiates, right, or alcohol. But even if it's just something like watching reality shows all evening instead of going for a walk after dinner, It is a habit. You're not necessarily physiologically addicted, but you've got your schedule. So over the course of the next two hours, I want to talk about both those emotions that are behind our behavior, and I want to talk about how we can break habits and why so many of us are afraid of change. So in answer to your question, can humans change? Yes. Is change easy? No. Can change be made manageable through some various strategies? Absolutely. People often ask me, is it ever too old to go to therapy? And absolutely not. There are people who are 90 years old who enter therapy for the first time and spend the last few years of their life making amends to people that they've hurt because of environmental pressures in their young life, um, finding greater meaning in their life. 
finding greater happiness in their life, and dying a dignified death where they finished the work. They finished the emotional work of their life. The most common time, of course, that people enter therapy for the first time and work on change tends to be in the mid to late 20s when they finish college, um, they're making an income so they can afford therapy, they're doing some big identity formation, and they're starting to think about their childhood and starting to evaluate some of the messages from their youth. But at any time across the lifespan, we can make the choice to change. All right, let's get us started. When we come back, there are a number of lies that we tell ourselves to avoid change. Let's talk about what's blocking change for you. You are listening to The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. We'll be right back. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Wall Show. This is KFI AM 640. I am talking about change. Is it time for you to make a change in your life? Whether you are changing jobs, changing relationships, changing your health habits, changing the way you respond to people, uh, learning to manage your feelings, all that involves risky change. Now, before I talk about some of the lies that we tell ourselves to avoid changing, There's been a lot of research on the big five personality traits. You know, the argument forever that will never be solved is, is any human behavior mostly nature or mostly nurture? Were we born with the gene to just blow up and be angry? Or did our parents model anger for us and that was the way we thought we learned to express anger as an example? And no one really knows, except that psychologists have come up with these personality dimensions called the big five. I'm going to go over them right now and uh, listen to, to see if you can hear yourself in some of these dimensions. Now, we all have bits of everything here um, and more of some and less of other. Um, it, by the way, the acronym for the big five is called OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N. Yeah, if you need to memorize it for one of my tests, <laughs> it will be on my developmental psychology test. Uh, okay, O for openness. So if you are an open person, you tend to be very creative. You're open to trying new things. You're focused on tackling new challenges. You're happy to think about abstract concepts. Now, if you are low on a scale of openness... You don't like change. You don't enjoy new things. You resist new ideas. You're not so imaginative. All right? Openness. Would you consider yourself open or not? And again, these are biologically predestined personality traits. But remember, they have to meet the environment to be enlivened or suppressed in a big way. All right. The next one is called conscientiousness. Remember, we're spelling the word ocean, O-C, conscientiousness. And people who are high on conscientiousness tend to spend a lot of time preparing for things. They finish the important tasks first. Who did that? The homework that you hated, you did first and left the easy stuff for later? Hmm. Uh, Conscientious people pay attention to details. Uh, Conscientious people enjoy having a set schedule. Conscientious people are wonderful as marital partners, right? Because you know they're going to pull their weight and be detail-oriented. 
However, people who are low on conscientiousness tend to dislike structure and schedules. They make messes and they don't clean up after themselves, at least not right away. They fail to return things or put them back where they belong. They procrastinate on important tasks. And they fail to complete the things that they were supposed to. Okay, third one. We're spelling ocean. O-C-E-E-E-E. Extroversion. Oh, I wonder who has that. People who are high on extroversion tend to enjoy being the center of attention. Thank you very much. They like to start conversations. Yes, I am the person on the plane who turns to you and goes, so are you going home or going on vacation? Right? Uh, They enjoy meeting new people. I love new people. Put me in a party with people I don't know. I find five new friends. Uh, They have a wide circle of friends and acquaintances. Uh, During the entire time I am on the 101 freeway, I'm going from one phone call to another trying to keep in touch with all my people because I got a circle, all right? Uh, We find it easy, extroverts, to make and keep new friends. And we feel energized when we're around other people. If I am feeling down or lonely, just put me on a mic. Let me talk to you, right? I'm around other people right now in my mind. This is how extroverts get their energy. Now, people who are low on extroversion tend to prefer solitude. They feel exhausted when they have to socialize a lot. They find it difficult to begin conversations. They dislike making small talk. They're like, rapport building? What's the point of that? Why do we need to talk about politics politics and the weather? (laughs) Politics became small talk at a certain point. Um, They carefully think about things before they speak. They're worried that they'll say the wrong thing. And they do not like being the center of attention. So, can extroverts become introverts? Can introverts become extroverts? Can conscientious people become less conscientious? We're talking about personality change on today's show. Almost finished with the big five personality traits. Agreeableness. If you are high on agreeableness, you have a great deal of interest in other people. You care about others. You feel empathy and concern for other people. You enjoy helping and contributing to the happiness of other people. I'm going to go, I'm going to take that. I'm going to carry the flag for agreeableness too, because it does apply to me. Sometimes I have too much empathy And then I have loose boundaries because I forget to put on my own oxygen mask first. If you're like that, you know what I'm talking about. If you are low on agreeableness, you take little interest in others. You don't care about how other people feel. Sometimes people who are not neurotypical, who fall a little bit on the spectrum, are this way, naturally. You have little interest in other people's problems. And you're okay insulting and belittling others. I mentioned I have a teenager who's a little bit on the spectrum. And sometimes I just have to go zip it. Don't tell her. It will hurt her feelings. Why? She should know it looks ugly on her. (laughs) I'm like, no. Um, Okay, and the last one, if we're spelling ocean and the big five personality traits, is neuroticism. Neurotic people. Woody Allen is the classic cinematic neurotic. Individuals who are high in neuroticism experience a whole lot of stress. They worry about many different things. They get upset easily. They experience dramatic shifts in mood, and they tend to feel anxious. And people who are low in neuroticism tend to be emotionally stable. They deal well with stress. They rarely feel sad or depressed. Yes, there are people out there who never feel sad or depressed, or rarely. I mean, it has to be a big loss. They're just even keeled. Love that. They're great people to date. They don't worry very much, and they tend to be very relaxed. All right, all this is well and good. But we're talking about change. 
So there's been a lot of research and I mean, 50 different cultures that these five dimensions can be found in human beings around the globe. This is not a cultural thing. And based on the research, many psychologists think that these big five personality dimensions are not only universal, but they have biological origins. For instance, my friend, psychologist David Buss over at the University of Texas, um, has proposed that these personality traits represent the most important qualities that shape our social landscape. We evolve our survival mechanisms. But there's been research across the lifespan. Remember, we're always trying to solve the puzzle. Nature, nurture, nature, or nurture. And people, uh, research has shown that most of these traits stay fairly stable. But as people age, they tend to become less extroverted. Interesting. I do find I'm starting to like my alone time. Mm-hmm. People also become less neurotic. Isn't that nice? That anxiety just starts to go down a bit as you age. That's good news. Also less open to new experience. I have noticed that in my peer group, I have some friends who say they'll never travel internationally again. Those days are behind them. I'm like, what? I always want new experience. Now, interestingly enough, as we age, agreeableness and conscientiousness tend to increase. I will say, I am more detail-oriented now than I was in my 20s and 30s, and I do mind my P's and Q's, pick up after myself, leave the world the way I found it, do my dishes, make my bed, and I for sure didn't do that in my 20s and 30s, not so much in a conscientious way. So part of getting older and wiser means that we become more conscientious. We also become more agreeable. We get more interested in other people. We care about others. We feel more empathy. This has been connected to age, just living on the planet. Now, remember this. Human behavior always involves an interaction between your own underlying personality traits and situational variables. And what are those situations? Our relationships. Okay, when we come back, the lies that we tell ourselves to avoid change. You're listening to Dr. Wendy Walsh here on KFI AM 640. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We're back with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM640. You know, you can always follow me on social media. I'm everywhere. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and the, the handle everywhere is at Dr. Wendy Walsh, just DR for doctor, at 
Dr. Wendy Walsh. And I love it when people send me private messages that, um, you know, extend the conversation or tell me something that's going on in their life because it gives me ideas for content. It keeps me in touch with you so I know what you want to hear about. So if I say something you like, let me know. I'll give you more of it. Talking about human behavioral change. It's interesting that human beings have what Freud used to call a repetition compulsion, a compulsion to repeat habits. We like to do the same thing over and over and over, except at a certain point for many people, they fall into dishabituation, meaning that they get bored with whatever it is. And we also need a certain amount of variety. I always go back to our hunter-gatherer past and ask myself, what were we evolved to live like? And really, for most of our lives, we roamed, so that here new experiences, right? And we were in moving encampments of about 35 people. Most of them were related to us. So in order to reproduce, we had to be brave enough to find another tribe or be the hunter who stretched out further looking for something or the gatherer who went further with a baby on her back. By the way, a little aside here, did you know that cultural anthropologists think monogamy evolved in humans and not all humans practice monogamy, so it's not species-wide, but monogamy grew in humans because it was the female gatherers who are moving and moving and moving, collecting and carrying babies. And in order for a dude to have a chance with her, he had to follow her butt. Secondly, if she was pregnant or he was about to keep her pregnant, make her pregnant or whatever, he had to follow her to see who she was going and where she was going, who she was going to be with, or else he would end up supporting another guy's genes, right? So part of this was, again, always to control reproduction of women and voila, monogamy. Um, So when we talk about human change, we think in terms of that we love habits. We love, we feel secure doing the same thing, but we also need new opportunities for our survival. Now in our modern day world, there are people who feel anxious about change. Of course, they might be the people who uh, score high on neuroticism. Hey, Alex, can we make sure we put on my page on KFIAM640.com, I'm going to go through and find a test for the big five personality traits. Let's put a link to that test. So if you want to know how you rate on agreeableness, neuroticism, conscientiousness, extroversion, openness, um, there, there are lots of great tests out there on the big five personality. So if you're somebody who tends to be a little more neurotic or maybe even too conscientious, there may be anxiety around change. So what are the lies that we tell ourselves that make us cling to habits and situations that actually don't benefit us anymore? All right. So for you conscientious people, here's a lie you tell yourself. You say, Well, I need to know and I need to understand every step of the process before I begin making a change. Are you keeping yourself from buying a house because you are watching spreadsheets that go on for days? You and Excel are married to each other? This is a problem. Are you afraid to get married because you've done these charts of cost-benefit analysis, the pros and cons of getting married, and you can't really decide? You're being too conscientious. The truth is, 
human life is about walking down a road. And along that road, you will see many turns to the right and the left, many forks in the road that you can take. But if you are stuck standing in the middle of the road, not walking, you will never see those forks. You will never see those opportunities. It is absolutely impossible to know how things will play out beforehand. Do you think any hunter-gatherer, as they climbed a mountain to get over that hill to see if there was a lush valley below filled with a food source, do you think they knew what was down there? There could have been a pack of lions ready to eat them. But they were brave, and they were agreeable, and they were open, and they were extroverts, and they went forward. So stop telling yourself that you need to understand every step of the process. All right, here's my favorite lie that stops people from change. You know what? I'm going to start it tomorrow. I'll feel more like it tomorrow. You know what? Every time you procrastinate, you reinforce the habit of giving in to short-term gratification. So you've made a resolution to go for a walk after dinner every night, which is very good because it helps your liver process all the carbohydrate that just went into it. Hopefully not too much carbohydrate. But exercise does help your insulin response. So instead, you go, ah, oh, the bachelor's on, the bachelorette's on, the real housewives of Atlanta. <laughs> what are the big reality shows? Are the Kardashians still big, Alex? There are a lot of... Yeah, 10 years now. Okay, there, there are just a lot of junk food for our brains that come on our television sets. So you say to yourself, I just want to see this one last episode of the show, and I'll walk tomorrow night. Every time you do that, you have taught yourself how to not give yourself the new behavior how to give in to short-term gratification. So there is only one time to start. And it's now, absolutely now. All right. Myth number three, that it's a lie you tell yourself that keeps you from changing. I can change other people. Don't worry, my relationship will get better because I can figure out a way to change him. He's going to stop drinking because I can control that. Good luck, darling. Uh... Look, members of Al-Anon, for instance, and that's for family and friends of those who, I'm just using the example of alcohol and drug problems, they're taught, I didn't cause it, I didn't control it, and I can't cure it. So if you're hoping that your change will happen because somebody else will change, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. So you've got to make the change. And later in the show, I'm actually going to talk about how much change you can make in your partner. There's a little bit of leeway but not a whole lot. Uh, Here's another myth. I can't change. I need to keep this job. I got to feed my kids. I I need to stay in this marriage because, you know, um, I'm taking care of my mother too. It's just too much. I, I can't. I can't. I can't. Do you remember the little train who could? You know what the little train who could said? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can as he went up that hill. And then it was, I know I can. I know I can. I can. Sometimes the beginning of change is simply a matter of changing the negative voices in your head. Telling yourself that you can change. That it is possible to get that new job, to lose that weight, to find that better partner, to parent in a different way, to exercise more, to drink less, whatever it is, to save more money. Did you hear that, Dr. Wendy? It is possible. So I I think you can, but not if you don't believe it. Not if you don't believe it. 
All right, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about lies that we tell ourselves and then switch it up for just a little bit because I want to talk about our love lives and change. And specifically, I want to talk to single people or people at the end of a relationship about to enter single life. And I want to tell you how to date differently this time. I want to tell you how to be a different person in your dating relationships. And you will be amazed at the kind of partners you attract because of your different behaviors and how different you will feel inside a new relationship. All right, when we come back, you're listening to The Doc. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. There's a pain. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Today, I am talking about change, human behavioral change. And let me just wrap up a few things I wanted to say about the lies that we tell ourselves to prevent change. And one of the most common ones is, I know I can change, but I'm not ready yet. I haven't gotten a sign. I haven't had a crisis. I haven't hit rock bottom. Listen. There's new research. You do not have to dig very far to find your bottom. All right. It's not rock bottom anymore. It could be a few inches in the dirt. Um, What's really happening is that you have fear and anxiety about the new behavior that you want to take on. So it's about combating that. Um, If you just practice being mindful of your thoughts your feelings, your beliefs, and how those are connected to behavior, you'll be able to figure out how you're tripping up yourself. But lying to yourself and saying, well, I can change. I'm just not ready yet. Of course I can quit. I just don't want to. Love that. All right. Here's another myth about change. If a situation or relationship isn't going according to my expectations, I have to change it or leave it. Huh? Huh? I'm flipping it around now, right? Here I'm doing a whole show on change, and I'm telling you that sometimes you have to stay right where you are because change for you means learning to tolerate, means learning to work things out. I mean, obviously, life is fabulous when you get everything you need, but we don't always get what we want. No person, no job, no opportunity comes without some kind of prickly path, some thorns once in a while. So I just want to say, be careful you don't give up on someone or something because they're not perfect to you. Because perhaps your challenge right now is to not change. But instead, change your attitude. Change your reaction. All right. Final myth. Lie. Lie that people tell each other, tell themselves, really, to not change. And I hear this one all the time. I'm too old to change. It's too late for me. Stop it. Never in the lifespan 
is it too late to change? People have done enormous turnarounds in their 50s, in their 60s, in their 70s, and beyond. Remember your past successes. Remember your character strengths. And reach out for help if you need it. Remember this. We become what we repeatedly do. So it's not who you are. It's the habits you form. And habits can be changed anywhere across the lifespan. And know this, that only about 50% of our happiness is genetic. Uh Uh-huh. 10% is thought to do with economic circumstances. And 40% is up to attitude. You know what I always say to my kids? The only difference between a crisis and an adventure is attitude. So maybe that's the thing you need to change. All right, moving right along. Can we talk about our love lives? And I get a lot of emails and private messages on social media from people who are having trouble finding mates or keeping mates and want to do it differently. They want to find a way. And they think, you know, there's this illusion that because we have online dating now, that the perfect mate is a mouse click away that it is data-driven, that you can go onto some kind of app and have such more, so much more selection than you ever had before. Because at the end of the day, it's finding Mr. Right or finding Mrs. Right. Right? Wrong. The truth is, there is no one person for you. There is no one soulmate. Those apps might be filled with dozens and dozens of people who you could potentially have a healthy relationship with. The art of having a healthy relationship and finding a partner, a good partner, is having a good relationship with yourself, being honest about your feelings, being honest about your foibles, and thinking about the patterns that you've had in the past and making a change this time. So let me start by talking a little bit about online dating. As I said, there is this illusion That if you have a wider mate selection, there's more chance that you can find the perfect mate. However, too many items on a menu decrease one's ability to make a commitment. Think about it. When is the last time that you were at a buffet in Las Vegas and chose one perfect entree? No, of course you didn't. You chose a little of that and some of that and more of that. So too much choice often has hurt people in their ability to make commitments. Um, they, I often say that if you do go onto online dating, you need to think of it not as an online dating app or website, but instead a meeting place. And that what you're looking at is a giant haystack. And you do not want to attract the attention of every single little twig of hay. You want to find the needle in the haystack. So what does that mean? You must throw away many, many twigs. So it's a process of elimination. And there's nothing to lose if all you've sent is a few little texts to each other. So what to do different this time? Well, get into the real world as quickly as possible because your brain is powerful. And when it hears someone's voice, it can pick up so much in vocal tone that it could never imagine that the person meant by text So my my attitude is 
a few little polite texts, and then give up the phone number. Don't worry, you can always block your number later. Please, we are in a time of technology. You can hide later behind tech. But get on the phone. Have a conversation. Now, just because you have texted somebody and looked at each other's pretty pictures uh, doesn't mean that you have to go out with them. But after a phone conversation, you might have less, I call them projections, you know, where you're just falling in love with the fantasy of who you wish that person was or who you imagine that person is. So if you've done a few texts, you've done a little online guerrilla research, you have to Google everybody, get the real name. And gentlemen, can I say one thing? You are still physiologically stronger than us. We still want to feel protected by a man. And we still are a little scared to meet a stranger in public. So if you're hoping a woman is going to give up her phone number or ever meet you for a coffee, give your real name, any real information, let let her look at you on LinkedIn or whatever. And if you don't have a good online profile, fix it up, please. Because she will need to Google you before she meets you. Just to say. And then when you do meet for the first time, don't make it a big, huge date. Meet for a quick coffee in the afternoon for a few minutes. And then from there... Decide if you'd like to have a date. Now, let's talk about beginning your relationship psychologically. When we come back, things to say and not say at the beginning of a relationship. You're listening to The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. I'm talking about the very vulnerable early stages of a love relationship. What you don't know that is at play is that everybody has a particular kind of attachment style. And that attachment style is partly biological predisposition and partly whatever happened to you when you were pre-verbal, especially in the first year of Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Life, when your brain tripled in size and made assumptions about the world, that the world is to be trusted or not, 
that people will take care of your needs or know that you must be independent and can't count on people. So some people have a lot of anxiety around relationships. Other people feel easily intruded upon and smothered. And at the beginning of a relationship, it's like an unconscious handshake happens. So two people meet in a candlelit restaurant and unconsciously they do a little deal. Hey, so you're going to treat me just like my abandoning daddy and raise all my anxiety and I'm going to become like a crazy stalker girl and be sending you way too many texts? And he goes, cool, and you're going to be hot and nice and give me the kind of sex I want as a woman, but um, then I'm going to be running away from you because you're a crazy girl? Or vice versa. I'm sorry, I put genders on. It could be any gender, either direction. And the person who has a lot of attachment anxiety tends to be sexually attracted to the more emotionally avoidant person. It happens every time they find each other. You know, you got to hang your hat on the right little peg there. So what can we do to stay super aware in the early stages of our patterns? Well, I've got a few little tips. And the first is honesty is the biggest virtue in online dating and real-world dating. Honesty and authenticity and indeed vulnerability are the power position in any relationship. In fact, some of the best online dating profiles are not the ones that brag about how great they are. They're the ones that talk about their flaws. They're the ones that make self-deprecating jokes. They're like, oh, that's a real human. He's laughing at himself. She's laughing at herself. These are really attractive people. So when I say honesty, I also mean be truthful about your online statistics. If you are a round, curvaceous woman and you're happy with that or you're working on losing some weight, tell them, right? Don't say that you weigh a svelte little 110 pounds because you're going to have to meet this person in real life and you're going to look like a liar. And dudes, can we talk about the height? Do all women know that whatever height the guy puts on, if it's Anything under six foot one, always subtract an inch. It's true. Any guy who's five foot nine puts he's five ten. Anybody who's five ten puts he's five. We just know that now. We know to always subtract an inch. But I'm asking you to actually put the height and put um, in brackets for real or something to let them know not to subtract the inch. Um, Because there's somebody for everybody. There really, really is. Put recent photos, please, and don't have them all photoshopped. Guys say this over and over and over. Yes, we can all put some Instagram, Snapchat filter on our face and make us look like a supermodel, even at the age of 65. But that's crazy because you're going to meet maybe in the bright daylight for your first coffee, right? So just be real and take pictures where you're in your environment and your home, at work. We want to see who you are in your life, what you're doing. Um, all right. So now let's talk about the very beginning. After you've been honest online and after you've met in the real world, is it possible to be too honest at the beginning of dating? Kind of, yeah. So here's the thing. It's okay to have some boundaries at the beginning. You know, there's going to be a lot of questions about your past relationships, about your divorce. The one question I used to get a lot when I dated as a single mother, I had two daughters. And I don't know, I always interpreted this as a racist question. My daughters are biracial, me and African-American. And I wondered if white single mothers 
I mean, mothers of white kids, single mothers of white kids um, get this question. But 100% of the time, very early on, are both your kids from the same baby daddy? Ew. Ew. A, none of your business. B, the answer is yes. But who cares? All this judgment on women and reproduction. Oh, patriarchy. All right. So what happens if you get asked a really personal question? Uh, my favorite is, why are you single? You're so perfect. Why are you single? As if single is this flawed state instead of, well, you know, I actually have a really fulfilled life and a lot of close, intimate attachments with people. I'm pretty happy. Um, but you can also answer any question with, you know what? I like you and I hope to get you to know you well enough to be able to answer that question someday. Isn't that cool? That's honest, authentic, vulnerable, and boundaried and having some self-respect, right? So you want to be able, when you're growing intimacy, to be able to share, have a few boundaries, but more than anything, you need to learn to control your anxiety. Stop counting the minutes in between texts and phone calls. Stop saying to yourself, oh no, he hasn't responded to my last text. Did I say something wrong? Forget it. Just go on in your happy, fulfilled life and Give yourself positive self-talk inside and wait and see. A friend of mine called me the other day and she has just gone through a divorce. So she's dating for the first time in many, many years, a couple decades. And she has a little bit of attachment anxiety she's unaware of. So she called to say, hey, I, I, I was told that if you want a guy to come closer, you should ice him out. They say you're supposed to be really cold and ice him out. So should I start being a little colder to him? Which made me say, because I'm hearing attachment anxiety right there. I'm like, oh, so he's not coming close right now? What happened? And she said, I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard from him. We usually text every single morning and he hasn't texted me. They've been seeing each other like a month, six weeks or something. And he didn't text this morning. And I said, well, at the beginning of relationship, people are far more attentive because they're hoping to enter into a sexual relationship. And once you enter into a sexual relationship, which they have, um, everything settles down a little bit. They, he no longer has to work to get your business. He has your business, right? Uh, so for her, Isa said she needs to just wait and see. You know, maybe he hadn't returned that text in a certain period of time because he was just busy and he wasn't full of attachment anxiety that he needed to reach out or he was afraid of losing her that he was calm and secure. Interesting enough, while we were on the phone, and now it's about maybe normally she would hear from him in the morning, so it was late afternoon, uh, he texted her. And she, I, I noticed her change completely and go, oh, he texted me, it's going to be okay. But couldn't you get that feeling of security without having to wait for their text or their phone call? Is there a way to get the feeling of security within yourself? I think there is. And the answer is, to think about your own attachment anxiety. What were the pieces that happened early in life? Do you have abandoning daddy syndrome? Did you have a cold, unfeeling mother? Is it possible to retrain your brain to believe you are lovable? It is. You can actually repeat statements like mommy loves me or daddy loves me over and over in your head that changes your brain. It acts as a self-soothing technique that calms your neurochemistry, calms your heart rate and your blood pressure, 
That's one of the reasons why people who have attachment anxiety sometimes get healed through parenting. Because as they're busy loving up on their babies, saying, I'll never abandon my baby like I was abandoned. I'll be there all the whole time. They're actually uh, saying things like, it's okay, it's okay, daddy's here. It's okay, mommy always comes home. It's okay, sweetie, I'm right here. And as you're saying those words, those words are going into your own brain and reprogramming it at the same time. So those that grow to have secure attachments are people who can tolerate the anxiety at the beginning of dating. And you will find somebody with a secure attachment style if you don't scare them away with your anxiety or you don't scare them away with your avoiding and instead just be calm. All right. Speaking of anxiety, when we come back, some people have anxiety not just about relationships, but everything from hand washing to social phobia. Let's talk about how to get over anxiety when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Uh, this show is dedicated to change. And one of the things that many people want to change is their mental health. They want to get better, whether they're suffering from depression or anxiety. They want to find a way to not live with that kind of pain. I want to talk specifically about anxiety or those that have what I call irrational fears in their life. And there are lots of different kinds of anxiety disorders. Um, Maybe one of these is something you've experienced. Panic disorder, characterized by panic attacks, those sudden feelings of terror that strike repeatedly and without warning. I remember being in high school as a senior and I was in class. It was beginning of the school year and I didn't really know anybody in this particular class. And the girl beside me suddenly stood up. She couldn't breathe. She was motioning for me to bring her purse. I ran out of the class with her because I'm the open, agreeable person, right? And the class is still going on and I'm in the hallway with her and she's hyperventilating and can't breathe, and freaking out, and pointing to her purse, of which I open her purse, and she finds a paper bag, and she starts hyperventilating in the paper bag. Teacher comes out. Now, girl is curled up in a ball on the floor in the hallway. I've got my arm over her shoulder. Teacher stands over her. All I remember seeing of the teacher were the shoes and the shins. And she's like, are you feeling better now? You can come back in. And I was just like, where's the empathy of this teacher? But I learned later she was experiencing a panic disorder. And one of the things that can sometimes happen is you hyperventilate. And then you physiologically feel like you're fainting because you're getting too much oxygen in. So breathing into the paper bag was reducing the amount of oxygen going into her lungs. And it helped her calm down. Um, People can have all kinds of panic disorders. It can involve chest pain. It can involve sudden nausea or diarrhea if it goes to the stomach. But there's often a physiological piece that comes with a panic disorder. And it comes out of nowhere because they're unaware of the unconscious processes of their fear. Then you've probably heard of, or maybe even experienced, obsessive compulsive disorder. We call it OCD. And these are repeated, intrusive, unwanted thoughts or rituals that seem impossible to control. Now, I have never had OCD, but a few weeks ago, 
I had a week of borderline OCD. We had had a meeting at the beginning of the semester about this terrible flu season and worry about college campuses. And I was about to go into the teaching schedule for the semester. And I'm also driving carpool for a middle school. So I'm exposed to large populations of young sick people. And uh, I'd had my flu shot, but people kept saying, oh, you know, it's only covered by 10% this year and it's a bad flu season. I had two friends that were hospitalized with it. I got a little nervous. I started bringing those disinfectant wipes into classrooms, wiping down computers, telling students maybe they should wipe down their desks. Here's a Clorox thing. Uh, Then I started the hand washing thing. Then I started thinking about how many people I'd shaken hands with until the next time I could get to a bathroom to wash my hands. Then I started carrying hand sanitizer in the I'm not joking. This is all in the course of one week. And I think it happened so that I could have a little bit of the experience of what it feels like to have real OCD, which is, I'm sure I don't mean to belittle it. I'm sure much more powerful. Um, Anyway, with me, it passed. And then I was shaking a lot of hands and not washing enough. And oh, well, uh, I'm okay now. But for those of you who live a life like that, my heart goes out to you. This is an anxiety disorder. Then there's also something really severe, post-traumatic stress disorder. And these are persistent symptoms that occur after experiencing a traumatic event. War, rape, child abuse, a natural disaster, or God forbid, having been taken hostage. PTSD involves nightmares, flashbacks, sometimes numbing of emotions, depression, irritability, and a not understanding of where it comes from. Then there's social phobia. And this is like serious. It's not just like, oh, I don't want to go to this party. This is extreme disabling and irrational fear um, of something that really doesn't pose much danger. For some people, it might just be a fear of speaking in public or having to speak at a meeting. I remember one time at an assembly, each of the teachers were supposed to stand up and introduce themselves for the beginning of the year. And my daughter's favorite teacher, who's known for being great in class, lost her voice when it came to talk to the parents. You Literally, she was choking and could barely talk, and she was shaking. And I realized she has a social phobia when it came to the parents that didn't happen with the kids. Then there's plain old generalized anxiety disorder. I love the pseudonym, acronym, GAD, chronic exaggerated worry about everyday routine life events. These are the neurotics, always anticipating a disaster and sometimes accompanied by physical symptoms, fatigue, trembling, headaches, nausea. Many people live their lives with this kind of anxiety. But I want you to know that it is treatable. First of all, there are a few misconceptions about anxiety. Some people, because they've had this anxiety their whole life and they've lived with it and they assume everyone else has it too, that anxiety disorders aren't that serious. But I want to tell you that you could be free, that anxiety can be hugely depressing, sorry, distressing, I'll get it out, and can impair your ability to function and have good quality of life. The other myth that people think about anxiety disorders is that they can just overcome it on their own. Well, research has shown that nearly half of people with anxiety disorders were not taking any medication or attending therapy in one particular group of population. And when the researchers asked them, 
you know, you suffer from anxiety. You're not going to therapy. You're not taking any medication. Why is that? And most of them said they didn't believe in getting treatments for emotional problems. So I want you to know you're not going to get over it on your own. And there is treatment. There is freedom for you out there. Some of these people also felt that anxiety disorders were a character defect. I need you to stop and reframe that right now. Anxiety has a genetic and a neurological basis. We already talked about the big five personality traits and neuroticism. It is mostly biological. And finally, a lot of people believe that in order to get over their anxiety, the only way to do it is through medication. Well, I will say that the psychopharmaceuticals that are out today are very subtle and do connect to just specific neurotransmitters and can be really, really effective in treating anxiety disorders. However, in many, many cases, cognitive behavioral therapy is sometimes better or at least just as good as medication. So when we come back, let us talk about various cognitive behavioral therapies that can help you get over your anxiety as we talk about change. This is my week of change. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. We're back with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. We are talking about change, and particularly I want to talk to you if you suffer from anxiety, whether that anxiety is a generalized anxiety disorder, you're a work. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Brain fog. Insomnia. Moodiness. Achy joints. Weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Whether it's social phobia, whether you have post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, or panic disorder, all this is treatable. And the good news is, It's often treatable in fairly short-term cognitive behavioral therapy. Let me just break something down for you because I think the general population does not understand the difference between psychoanalytic therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. 
psychoanalytical therapy uh, began with Freud and even before that and Jung and continues today. And a lot of time is spent delving into childhood issues and early life memories. The thought is that if you want new behaviors in your life, that you need to get to the bottom of it and you can actually feel your way through feelings to new behaviors. And psychoanalysts believe that the change that happens in psychoanalytic therapy is very permanent personality change because it's sort of the long, slow distance version of therapy. It is also the most expensive therapy because it's long. A true analysis is actually a few times a week for six months straight at a minimum of $150 an hour. So yeah, it is the therapy for the wealthy. Oh yes, my analyst says, I was talking to my analyst the other day and she says, right? Okay. Doesn't mean it doesn't work. And in fact, when I practiced, I was an analyst. I love Freud. I love Jung. I love Bowlby. I love attachment stuff. That's all me. But in today's age of a quick fix, insurance companies are far more likely to pay for short-term therapy. And so there's an entire other very popular branch of therapy that called cognitive behavioral. And the belief of cognitive behavioral therapists is that you can just behave your way to new feelings instead of feeling your way to new behaviors. And for many, many diagnoses, it is very effective. Now, it's not to say that every single therapist out there is in one camp or the other. In fact, today, most therapists pull, pull from a toolkit that involves lots of things. But if your therapist says, okay, well, I'm going to put you on a six to eight week treatment plan. It'll involve this homework and you're going to do these exercises. I can guarantee that's a cognitive behavioral therapist. An analyst more sits back and waits, asks the right questions to let the answers come up within you. And they don't assign homework so much. Now, they both can be very, very effective. And when it comes to anxiety disorders, cognitive behavioral therapy is most effective. Now, combined with medication, and I, I'm not a prescriber, so it would never be my job to tell people to be on medication or not, unless I was consulting with a medical doctor, a psychiatrist. But research has shown that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know them as SSRIs, uh, can help their antidepressants and they can be really effective in treating this anxiety. Um, and especially for the underlying depression that comes along. See, you don't realize it. If you have spent a lifetime in fear and worry, that eventually morphs into a kind of depression. Right? Now, there has been some research that shows that cognitive behavioral therapy is sometimes better and or when combined with medication is particularly effective. So let's talk about what a therapist would do in cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, the first thing they do is help you understand your anxiety because sometimes we have a lot of irrational fears, right? Things that are going to happen. If we didn't have a certain degree of, I call it healthy narcissism, we would all be curled up in a ball in our beds and never get out, right? Because an earthquake could happen. We could die in a car crash. Our boss could fire us that day. Why even get out of bed? But the person who lives with anxiety 
has those kind of background anxiety all the time. And they don't understand where they come from. So working with your therapist, you can actually gain some insight into how your thoughts and your behaviors actually increase your anxiety. They fuel your anxiety. Did you know that people with anxiety tend to totally jump to conclusions? They overestimate how likely that car accident is to happen. How likely an earthquake, followed by the tsunami, is about to happen. They actually feed their anxiety with negative thought patterns. So one of the things that a cognitive behavioral therapist might do is help you do some cognitive, by the way, cognitive just means thinking, thoughts, right? Uh, Help you do some cognitive restructuring. So you start to become self-aware of those negative thoughts that have crept in and they help you modify and think it in a different way. Reframe it. So cognitive behavioral thinking isn't, or cognitive behavioral therapy is not like the power of positive thinking. I will think the best will happen. No, it's the power of logical thinking. You know, actually earthquakes only come, you know, once every few years and so few people actually get killed, right? Instead of saying, I'll never die in an earthquake, right? I don't know why my unconscious is using that example all through the show. Uh, I hope it's not prophetic. Just say that. Um, Sometimes, depending on what the anxiety or the fear is, a cognitive behavioral therapist might use exposure therapy. And that's where you're forced to face your fears in various contexts. So if you have social phobia, it might mean uh, if you're at your next dinner party of only six people, or you might be asked to hold a dinner party of six people, that you would start carrying the conversation first, jumping in a little bit more, right? Confronting your situation until you eventually advance up to standing in front of a big group of people. I'm actually reading a book, uh, uh, a mini creative memoir by Shonda Rhimes, the creator of uh, oh, all those Thursday nights shows, and Scandal and a bunch of others. Anyway, but she had social phobia that I didn't realize. And she, she, her book is called The Year of Saying Yes. And it's about, or Say Yes to Everything. No, The Year of Saying Yes. And she talked about just making herself go on talk shows she was afraid to go on, to stand up in front of people. And uh, here's the good news about cognitive behavioral therapy. The programs consist of 18 to 15 week sessions. So you will see big gains in a short period of time usually by the fifth to seventh session. Um, and it's impo- it's, it, 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 you might need tune-ups every now and again because humans are famous for regressing back into their old patterns, but you will also be given valuable tools. So when those things creep up again, you can jump right back to your exercises that you learned to help alleviate your anxiety. It reminds me a little bit about... I had back pain once for like over a year and I was like scheduled for back surgery and I was terrified. And then this Pilates girl taught me how to work with my core, gave me a set of exercises. Now I'm addicted to Pilates, but um, when I do feel a little creepy in my lower back, the first sign of it, I get right back down on the floor with my Pilates ball and I start doing all those exercises. And the same can happen for our mental health, that we can become self-aware and when something starts to creep up again, We can do the exercises we need to do. All right. When we come back, we are completing our show on human behavioral change. And one of the things that comes up a lot 
uh, is people ask me, can I change my partner? How can I change my partner? And the answer is yes and no. I'll explain when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Oh, help me, please, doctor. We're back with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Remember, you can always follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, Snapchat. The handle on everything is at Dr. Wendy, like a fan, Walsh, W-A-L-S-H. So one of the most common questions people ask me is, how can I get my partner to do this? How can I get my partner to stop doing this? How can I change my partner? And the answer to whether you can change somebody else is usually a resounding no. However, relationships and families are a system. And there are cogs and wheels in that system. And you know that if you change the working of one particular cog or wheel... It has an impact on the other. Now, this is not a guarantee that when you change your own particular cog in the system that is your relationship, that the whole machine won't just stall. Might happen. But they also might adapt. So I remember years and years ago, I I entered therapy for the first time in my life when I was pregnant. Well, actually, no, no, no. I think I went like just a few sessions to Dr. Judith Orloff. I'll never forget her in Century City. She has tons of books out now. She's so interesting. I think I've had her on my show. And I was doing like single girl depression stuff because I couldn't find a mate and I wanted to procreate and all that. And then once I found a mate, it was like, bye. And then I entered therapy because I didn't realize I suffered from pregnancy depression. You know, some people have euphoria when they're creating a new life. And I had PMS times 10 every day of my life, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. I did not know that the pregnancy hormone would affect me that way. But it was really good because it was a great chance for me to grow. And I then I entered long-term therapy with Dr. Zari Hedayat in Brentwood. And um, we were together every Friday for seven years straight. Yeah, I'm very therapized. Um, and the other thing that happened along that way is that I had one child and then I had another. And there's a lot of research to show that there's a huge degree of neuroplasticity that happens to the mother right after the birth of a baby. So while I was in therapy, I also was primed to grow and change. But one of the things I remember asking Dr. Hedayat was, um, I know I actually said something stupid that we say all the time, by the way. We say, I put a boundary on him. Okay, I have just put a boundary on her. Or he doesn't respect my boundaries. We hear that all the time, right? And she said something. She simply said, you know, we can't put boundaries on somebody else. You can only put boundaries on yourself. And it was like, boom, light bulb going off, fireworks going off in my head. I'm like, what? So for all this talk about setting boundaries, what we really should be saying is, Containing ourselves, limiting ourselves, finding a new reaction to others. So in answer to your question, can I change my partner? The answer is no, but you can change your reaction to that partner. They may or may not change the way you're hoping in reaction to your reaction, but it's all about you. So let me say this about human behavior, is that we are pleasure seekers. And all human behavior, whether you're parenting kids or changing an adult, 
are always going to respond better and change their behavior if there is a positive reward system. Negative rewards generally don't work that much. It is a positive reward system that works. So if you are trying to um, train a child, you're going to give them rewards for good behavior and you're going to ignore the bad behavior unless it's dangerous or it's hurting somebody else, right? So uh, in your relationship, you can do the same thing. Water what you want to grow. Don't water the weeds. And what happens in long-term intimate relationships is when you are unhappy with a partner's behavior, you start to nag, which is the same as watering the weeds. You are highlighting the negative behavior over and over and over and essentially saying to them, you're a loser. You did this again. And the message to them is, okay, I guess I'm a loser. What if you did the opposite? And every small change in the right direction, you gave a positive reward for. Not in a like sarcastic way, but let's use a really simple, benign example. Let's say you're sort of neat and tidy and your partner is not. Be he a he or a she, your partner is not. And they drop their dirty underwear on the floor every night. The floor of the master bedroom or the floor of the bathroom, but nowhere near the hamper. So again, nagging, not working, right? What if you instead just really watched that dirty underwear and started with any time it was like literally two inches closer towards the laundry room or the hamper? You gave a small reward. What about... If instead of nagging, you walked up to your partner and said in a very cute, cheeky way, hey, come here, let me give you a kiss. And they're like, whoa, whoa, why am I going to kiss for? What's that? And you go, I just noticed that your underwear was three inches closer to the laundry room. Thank you, baby. You're getting there. Right? Imagine. Imagine if you could do that. What do you think they'd do next time? They might kick it all the way six feet next time. Oh, guess what? They get six kisses for that. It can be a fun little game. Adults can do it, and you know what the home run could be, right? Just figure out what their reward system is. What do they want? And um, in relationships, sometimes that is physical affection and sex. Sometimes it's you changing a behavior for them as a reward. Think about what their reward system is and shape the behavior by watering positive change. Now, I want to say one other thing. When we talk about, can my partner change? Sometimes the change you're hoping for are big, huge changes that will take a very long time. If your relationship is absolutely toxic, meaning uh, there's domestic violence, there's severe emotional abuse, there's drug or alcohol addiction, there's chronic cheating, you can't shape behavior change with that big toxicity. And if there are children in the nest with a relationship with that much toxicity, then you actually have to break up because the nest isn't safe for developing minds. So I want to make that clear because sometimes people hear my advice about changing their partner and, you know, resolve to stay in even the worst situations because they're looking for the silver lining of tiny behavior change. But That big toxic stuff is not your responsibility. I'm talking about the day-to-day stuff. Getting them to be more helpful. Getting them to put more into the relationship. 
all humans will work for a reward. Oh, and the other thing is you don't even need to tell them you're doing this plan. Not at all. It's amazing how you can watch behavior change just by a positive reward system. And you got to cut out the nagging part too on the negative part. Try this sometime and write to me. Let me know if it worked or not because it's, it's basic human behavioral research motivation, right? All right. So we have spent the last two hours talking about human change. And here is what I would like you to go out and do this week. Find something small in your behavior that you would like to change. Become aware of it and do it. None of those lies and myths that say you can't or the time's not right or you haven't hit rock bottom. Um, Instead, say, I owe this to myself because I love myself. And you can do this. You can change. You will see me, hear me, every Wednesday on the Gary and Shannon Show in the 1 o'clock hour. And as usual, I am 640. You can also download the free, free iHeartRadio app. Just punch in keyword Dr. Wendy and every show comes up. You could drive yourself crazy listening to my voice all day long in your car. Thank you so much for being with me today. It is always a pleasure to share my psychoeducation with you. And uh, I guess that brings our show to a close. We'll see you on Wednesday. This is Dr. Wendy Walsh on KFI AM 640. Mo Kelly is next. Here every Sunday from 4 to 6 on KFI AM. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.